Chapter 15 Yadith awoke to find Ausa already puttering around the house with morning jobs. Yadith greeted her and looked for something to do to help, but Ausa insisted she sit down and eat some bread and drink some milk. After that, Yadith tried to pick up a broom and sweep the floor, but Ausa took it off her. We have people for that, she said. We never had helpers at home, said Yadith, unsure whether the people who worked for Ausa were slaves or paid laborers, and afraid to ask. You said your father was a fisherman? Ausa asked. Yes, said Yadith. Well, yes, I don't suppose you would, said Ausa matter-of-factly. Did you ever learn to spin and weave? Not really, said Yadith. I can clean wool and card it. Well, I'll have to teach you, said Ausa, seeming to forget that the two girls would be leaving soon. Gunhild had awoken by this point, and soon after, Ausa's niece and nephew, Tati and Tola, arrived. Tati was seven and had decided that she knew everything, at least so far as what other people should and shouldn't do, especially her younger brother. Tole was five and full of questions. Both were thrilled to have a new person in the village, and Yadith played with them as Gunhild ate. She was glad to see that Gunhild remembered not to talk. It could ruin everything if she slipped up, and for that reason, as much as any other, Yadith wanted to get back on the water quickly. Nevertheless, it would be sad to leave this house and family so soon. When Gregory awoke, he insisted on showing both Yadith and Gunhild around the village, but before he could, Father Wilfrith had arrived as well, with the same intention. The result was that Yadith and Gunhild were guided by both Gregory and Wilfrith, who overwhelmed them with facts about the village and its inhabitants. The houses weren't too close together, and they walked for over a mile to make a complete loop around the village. Back at Theobald and Oslig's house, Wilfrith was invited to eat, and he asked Yadith questions about England, though she had few answers. Even if she hadn't been away for years, she knew little of kings and bishops or anything that interested the priest. Besides, Wilfrith's abbey was in Kent, which was a different kingdom than her own. Soon half the day had passed without anyone suggesting they work on repairing the mast, and Yadith was looking for a way to bring it up, when it started to rain, and she decided not to mention it. Eventually Wilfrith rose and apologized for taking advantage of their hospitality, but asked Yadith whether, before she left, she would take letters from him home with her to England. "'I'm sure if you give them to any monk or priest, they could get them back to my abbey,' he said. The rest of the day was spent inside. Tati had just learned to play a board game and wanted to teach Yadith. Yadith had never played any game of strategy before, and Tati was thrilled that she could beat her new, older friend. After their evening meal, Tole asked for a story and insisted that Yadith be the one to tell it. "'How about the story of the three sisters and the troll?' asked Yadith. "'I know that one,' said Tole. "'I want a different story I've never heard.' Yadith thought for a moment and began. Once, long ago, a husband and a wife lived alone in a house by the sea. They longed for a child, but never had one. But one day the husband was walking on the seashore, and he saw a child, a baby. He thought it was the most beautiful and precious baby ever, and he brought it home to his wife, and they decided to raise the baby as their own, and they gave her the name Sea Pearl. Sea Pearl grew and grew and became a young lady and word of her beauty spread throughout the land, eventually reaching the son of the king. His name was Godrich, and when he heard about Sea Pearl, he rode for a day and a night without stopping to come see her. When he arrived at her house, he fell in love immediately and asked her to marry him. I can't, said Sea Pearl. My father goes to fish every day, and I help him with the nets. 
If I leave him, who will help him then? I shall give him three servants to help him, said Prince Godrich. You need not worry. Yedith wasn't quite sure where the story was going, except that Godrich had to end up a seal by the end. She looked over at Gunhild, wondering if she had been able to follow the story in English, but Gunhild was staring glumly into the fire. She hadn't smiled all day. Yadith felt vaguely sorry for her, but didn't see what she could do, and turned back to the story. In the distance, she heard notes from a musical instrument. Yadith continued. But I can't marry you, said Sea Pearl. My mother is old, and she needs help cooking and cleaning. I can't leave her. I shall give her three maidens to help cook and clean, said the prince. You need not worry. I'm sorry, said Sea Pearl, but truly I cannot leave the sea. I must stay by it always. Then we will live here, said Godrich, and I will build a great hall for us by the ocean side. You need not worry. Sea Pearl agreed, said Yadith, but she made the prince promise one more thing. She said she had to go swimming in the sea on every full moon, but that when she did, he must not watch her to see where she went or wait up for her to come back. Only when he had promised this would she agree to marry him. Yadith smiled at the direction the story was taking, and without thinking looked again to Gunhild for approval. But Gunhild was gone. Assuming she had gone to the latrine, Yadith continued the story. They were married, and Godrich gave Seapearl everything she could desire, but he couldn't help but be curious about where she disappeared to every month. It was even worse that he wasn't allowed to know, for he was a prince, and was used to getting his way. Finally, he couldn't stand it, and he hid himself behind some rocks at the beach on the night his wife was to be away. When the full moon was high in the sky, he saw her approach the beach, and then to his amazement, he saw something in the water. Seals, a whole group of seals, came up out of the water. Then Sea Pearl let her dress fall to the sand, and instead of a woman's, she was a seal too. Prince Godrich didn't know what to do. He watched as she swam out to sea, and he suddenly worried that she wouldn't ever come back. Wait, he called out to the seals, and Sea Pearl looked at him sadly and swam away. He waited all night, but when the sun rose, she had not returned. He gathered up her dress and went back to his great hall and continued to wait, but his wife never returned. Soon Prince Goderich could neither eat nor drink out of longing for his wife. His mother the queen suggested that he marry again, but he swore he would never wed another. Finally he could bear it no longer, and he went to the wise woman who lived in the mountains. He rode for three days until he came to a great mountain, and then he left his horse and climbed upward until he reached the hovel where the wise woman lived. He told her what had happened, and said that if he could not see Sea Pearl again, he would surely die. The wise woman made him a potion to drink, and told him that the only way to find his love was to search the wide ocean from east to west and north to south. Godrich paid the old woman for her help, and without stopping, returned to the sea, where he drank the potion, and he became a seal himself. Now he swims in search of her. He has swum from Ireland to Jerusalem, and all the lands in between, up rivers and down, searching islands and sea caves, looking for his lost love. He didn't find her yet, said Tole. He hasn't yet, said Yadith. He's still looking. Will he ever find her, said Tati. He may some day, said Yadith. If he does, do you think she should return to him? Tati seemed to take this question very seriously. Only if he says, I'm very, very sorry, she said. 
that's what I would make him say. With that, Elsa insisted it was time for bed, and she began to rake out the coals. Gunhild had actually gone in search of the music she had heard. It sounded like plucked strings, but was so far away it was hard to follow. She wandered away from the house, and soon the village was just a glow in the distance. The grass was long here, and her dress was soon damp with the water left by the day's rainstorm. She was getting nearer to the music, though, and soon she reached the edge of the tree line. It was dark, and she would have hesitated, but the music was very near. She would have called out, but remembered that she was not supposed to speak. Just past the first of the trees, she saw Gregory leaning back and playing a lyre, much like the one she had seen in Ripa the year before. Gregory heard her and looked up, smiling, but when he saw who it was, he almost dropped the lyre in shock. You, he said. What are you doing here? The young man looked at her curiously. You're Guthild, right? Guthild? You? She drew nearer, but didn't speak. Can you understand me? asked Gregory. Gunhild understood nothing he had said after the word you, so she smiled at him and stood, waiting. But you can hear, he said. You just don't have words. You must have heard the harpa. She recognized the word and nodded. Gregory raised it up and held it toward her, and she stepped up to look more closely. Go on, you can hold it, he said, and he put it in her hands. She wrapped her hands around the smooth wood and held it close. She couldn't see it well, but could feel intricate carvings and metal decorations entwined around the wood. She could tell it was beautiful. Hesitating, she took one hand and gently plucked one string and then another. Gregory leaned back against the tree. I wasn't expecting you, of course. I was... He paused. I suppose you can keep a secret, can't you? It's not like you're going to tell anyone. I'm waiting for someone. He looked up at her to see if she understood. She looked at him, then back at the lyre, and she kept playing the strings. You would never believe who. I mean, you might, because you don't know why it matters. But it's Gislinda, Gerhard's niece. This is the spot where we meet sometimes. My father would disown me, probably. He says Gerhard's family are traitors. But it's not like Gislinda is a traitor. And she's a good Christian. I asked her. She knows how to say that our father and everything. Father says they're all secretly pagans, but I know she would have told me if she was. Gunhild had played up and down the scale a few times, and began to pluck some of the strings together with her finger and thumb, the way she had seen it done. Gregory kept talking. We met like this, you know. Father bought me that harpa on a trip to Dorstad. He said a nobleman should know how to play an instrument, though he's never played one. I have no idea how to actually play it. No one in the village does, so I just fool around with it. He says I was meant to be more than a farmer. He says if I go fight for Count Leodegar, someday he might grant the whole village to our family. It's like... It's like he thinks our family is better than the rest of the village. But I don't see how. Sorry, what was I saying? Gunhild had sat down so she could rest the lyre on her lap. It was so dark that she couldn't even see the strings, but she felt them and made patterns up and down the notes. The top corner of the lyre was pressed against her cheek, and the vibrations ran through her in the still night air. She was only vaguely aware of Gregory's rambling. Oh, yes, the harpa, 
continued Gregory. So father gave me the harpa, and I was playing it out here, away from the village, and Gislinda heard me and came to see, and we started talking, and we kept talking. And so after that I would come out here to play, and if she heard me, if she could get away from her family, she would come see me. That's who I thought you were when you got here. He paused. We want to get married, he said, but I don't think our families will let us. Father wants me to fight for the Count. I think I already said that. But Gislinda has this. When she smiled at me for the first time, I knew I just wanted to be with her. Here. Nowhere else. Gregory seemed to snap out of his trance. I don't think you caught any of that, he said. Which is probably a good thing. He stood up and, when she noticed, so did Gunhild. She handed the lyre back to him and smiled, trying to convey her thanks without words. He smiled and nodded. I guess Gislinda can't get away tonight, or maybe she didn't hear. Remember, don't tell anyone. Not that you would. He started walking back to the village and beckoned for Gunhild to follow. When they returned to the house, Gregory told his family that he had found Gunhild wandering outside, but she hadn't seemed lost or in trouble and Gunhild, for her part, simply sat down on her blankets on the floor and took off her shoes and prepared for bed. It was morning. Arnwald the smith stood at his forge, shaping a small knife blade with careful but firm taps. The tapping carried throughout the village, but it was simply background noise to the villagers, and they ignored it easily. A good smith was crucial to a village, and the people valued and respected Arnwald, and didn't begrudge him the noise. Even as important as a smith was, Arnwald wasn't at his forge every day. There wasn't enough work for that. Like the others, he farmed wheat. He also raised rabbits, and each spring he bought a young pig from the market at Dorstad, raised it, and slaughtered it in the fall. Arnwald paused in his work and laid down his tools. He stretched and looked at the rain drizzling down from the sides of the awning that stretched over his forge. His shoulder had started hurting again, as it had been for a while now. He used to be able to swing the hammer for hours, but now he had to take regular breaks, and when he kept going too long his shoulder began to crunch as if it was filled with sand or gravel. If I can make it a few more years, Ostag can use the hammer instead, he thought. Ostag, Arnwald's son, was almost twelve and he had been learning about blacksmithing and helping out his father for years, but the hammer was still too much for a twelve-year-old. Maybe one of the other lads would want to learn, thought Arnwald, but part of him liked the idea of keeping the role of village smith firmly within his own family. As if on cue, Ostag came running through the rain. Father, he called. Father, the Count is arriving. He's coming to the village. Arnwald found his heart suddenly racing. He looked quickly around to see that no one else was watching, and called Ostag to him. He pulled a small box from under a pile of blankets in a corner, and pulled out some pieces of metal. There were two smooth cylinders, each as long as the width of his hand, and a metal cuff they fitted into. He put them in his son's hands, and whispered, Quickly, hide these in the forest, far away from the village. Very far. Do you understand why? The boy nodded seriously. Run opposite to the way they're coming, and don't let them see you. Ostag dashed off the pieces of metal firmly in his hand. Arnwald took a breath to calm himself. It may be nothing, he thought. Who knows why he is here? There's nothing to worry about. He picked up his hammer again, 
but found his hands were shaking slightly, so he went back to his house and let the coals of his forge go cold. Ostag dashed away from the village and didn't slow until he reached the distant trees. Even then he didn't stop and walked further into the woods. When he had heard people shouting about the count approaching, he had gone to see for himself, then immediately told his father, as his father had instructed him. A visit from the count might be disastrous. Now Ostag looked down at the tools he held. They were coin dies. Each cylinder had the image of one side of a coin on it, and when a disc of silver was pressed between them and the top struck sharply with a hammer, it made a coin. Coins were made only by royal permission to ensure that they were made with pure silver. If someone were to take some silver coins, melt them down, and add some lead or tin, he could make more coins than he had started with. Arnwald had been doing just that for years. Forging coins was a serious crime, and the penalty was death, but that hadn't been enough to stop Arnwald. He just had to be careful, he had explained to Ostag. No one else knew, not even Ostag's mother, and Arnwald made sure never to use any counterfeit coins in the village. He spent them all in Dorstad at the fair each year, and the only thing that could land him in trouble was if the coin dies were found, which was why Ostag was now burying them at the foot of an oak tree and marking the spot with a large rock. The boy surveyed the area to make sure he could find it again later. He felt particularly proud his father had entrusted him with this job. The whole village turned out to watch the small procession approach. Count Leodegar, riding his proud bay palfrey, led the line of travelers. He was followed by his clerk, then three men-at-arms, then two porters, who rode horses but led mules behind them as well. Leodegar was past fifty, almost sixty now, and his hair and short beard were silver. He had a thin, cool mouth and dark eyes, eyes that now wandered scornfully over the farms and houses of Wynnum. Villagers came to watch the procession pass, and most inclined their heads toward him in greeting. None made a low bow, though, which annoyed him. He made his way between fields and houses to the center of the village, to the flat, bare area near the church, and he dismounted. Father Wilfrith was there waiting, as were Theobald and Gregory, with a few others. Salve, Leodegar, said Father Wilfrith in Latin. Greetings, priest, said the Count, but he spoke not in Latin, but in Frankish. His clerk scrambled to translate as the Count continued. We'll put the tents over there, he said, pointing. Have someone feed and water the horses. The clerk explained in imperfect Frisian what Leodegar had said. The Count walked toward Father Wilfrith's house, pausing in front of the church to cross himself. Once inside, he pulled off his boots, sat in a chair, and put his feet up on Wilfrith's table, waiting for the priest to catch up to him. Leodegar had been born to fight. His father had been a minor nobleman in the service of Pepin the Short, and Leodegar had followed in his footsteps. When Charles later took the throne, Leodegar was by his side, and as the new king expanded his kingdom in all directions, Leodegar earned a reputation as a brutal and effective commander. He fought Lombards, Moors, Avars, and Saxons, and anyone else who stood up to the inevitable advance of Charles the Great. Over the years, Leodegar distinguished himself in battle and was rewarded handsomely. A few years ago, King Charles had made him a count and granted him lands and all the taxes and fighting men that he could levy from them. Father Wilfrith, after delegating the arrangements for Leodegar's stay to one of the other villagers, came back to his house, along with the clerk, whose name was Giles. Giles was crucial to Leodegar's success on these trips. 
Without him, Leodegar couldn't have spoken to anyone. Leodegar, like his king, spoke Frankish, though he had picked up some Latin during his campaigns throughout Europe and his life in Charles's court. That Latin, however, was so changed from the church Latin that Wilfrith spoke that it was no longer the same language, and they couldn't understand each other beyond a few words. Giles spoke both the church Latin and the common Latin, and had learned enough Frankish and Frisian to get by. Wilfrith therefore spoke Frisian, and Leodegar Frankish, and Giles did the best he could to translate. Leodegar said he was here to survey the village and take count of the houses, farms, and families for tax purposes. He asked many questions, and Wilfrith tried to be as helpful as he could. Then Wilfrith asked after the health of the Bishop of Dorstad, but Leodegar made it clear he wasn't interested in chatting. Soon after, Theobald arrived to invite Leodegar and Father Wilfrith to a feast that evening, which they accepted. Theobald asked about the health of the Count's family, but was met with the same frosty reaction as Wilfrith had. Then one of Leodegar's men arrived, and the Count left with him abruptly, leaving Wilfrith and Theobald standing awkwardly, wondering what to do next. Leodegar and his sergeant walked to where the porters were setting up tents, and when they were sure no one was listening, they spoke. "'What did you find?' asked the Count. "'Nothing,' said the man. "'We searched his forge and his house without warning, like you said. "'No coins, no dyes, no bits of silver to melt down.' "'Leodegar scratched his chin reflectively. "'He could have hidden it somewhere else, but that will be hard to find. "'More likely there are counterfeit coins here that match the ones in Dorstad. "'I don't think they have many coins in this place,' said the man. "'Oh, there's some somewhere,' said Leodegar. "'We just have to get them to show us.' Something will come up. Call me for dinner. With that, he walked to his tent and lay on his bedroll, thinking. Dorostad, the biggest town in Leodegar's lands, was an active port, with traders coming and going throughout the spring and summer. Many coins passed from hand to hand, silver coins with the heads of kings stamped on them, and it all worked well so long as everyone trusted the coins. But over the past few years, debased Frankish coins had been turning up in Dorostad, and Leodegar couldn't tell where they were coming from. Counterfeit coins meant a loss for merchants, but worse, it meant less trade. Boats from Hamwich and Lundenwich might choose to land in a different port instead, and that was a problem for Leodegar, because as the Count, he collected a fee from every boat that landed. For the past few years, he had noticed trade dropping off as rumors of bad coins had spread. At first, he assumed there must be a counterfeiter in Dorstad itself, but was unable to uncover one. Now he was searching other villages, one at a time, which meant traveling in bad weather away from the comforts of his own hall. He was old now, he would admit it, and he would rather be anywhere than among a bunch of Frisian peasants on the edge of the civilized world. He disliked the Frisians anyway, on the principle that they didn't speak his language, and he distrusted their loyalty to the king and his holy church. I wonder what they'll manage to put together for dinner tonight, he wondered. It had better be decent. That morning, Yadith convinced Gregory to help begin repairs to the mast. Despite the light rain, Gregory took some of the farmhands and they pulled the boat up to the edge of the village, and they unrolled the sail and untangled the ropes and laid everything out on the ground. Yadith and Gunhild followed and watched, as did some other villagers who gave suggestions and advice. Nothing else interesting was going on, and even the rain didn't keep the curious away. They were about to go look for a sapling that could be made into a mast, and two of the onlookers were debating about whether the wood for the mast had to be cured first or whether green wood would work in a pinch, when Count Leodegar and his entourage arrived, and the plans were changed. 
Gregory was needed to help set up for the feast that evening, and Yareth and Gunhild found themselves again with nothing to do but wait. They took a walk far from the village so they could talk freely, but found they didn't have much to say. Yareth reassured Gunhild that they would go soon, and Gunhild grumbled about the weather. Ebald put all he had into impressing Leodegar at the feast that evening. A pig had been roasting over a fire all afternoon, and Theobald made sure there was bread, black pudding, chicken, salted fish, mashed peas, pickled cabbage, and lots of mead and ale. Gregory wondered, as he saw it being prepared, whether his father was using too much of the winter stores, but knew that nothing could hold his father back. This was the chance for him to make an impression. Theobald had wanted tables set up outside. His own hall, large as it was, didn't have a table of its own, and his family, like all the others in the village, ate sitting around the central hearth with bowls in their laps. The rain had not let up, however, and there was no way to build a pavilion to cover an outdoor table in one afternoon, so Theobald settled on setting up a small table for himself, his wife, his son, Leodegar, and Wilfrith, and then realized that he would need to squeeze in Giles the clerk, too. The rest of the family, along with Yadith and Gunhild, would still sit at the hearth. When the guests arrived, Theobald greeted them extravagantly, and referred to Leodegar as warrior of our most holy and Christian King Charles the Great. Leodegar wasn't as grim as he had been previously, either. Although his men had found no evidence of counterfeiting at the smith's forge, Leodegar still suspected this village. It was only a hunch, and it was likely driven by his own distaste for the people here, but he decided that if anyone was behind the scheme, it was probably the pompous rustic in front of him now, and he was looking forward to drawing him out. Due to the language barrier, dinner conversation was difficult at first, but eventually it hit a rhythm. Theobald asked about hunting, and nodded appreciatively as Leodegar described how two of his new dogs had tangled with a wolf this summer. Theobald had asked about King Charles and his habits and dispositions, even going so far as to ask whether he preferred pork to beef and wine to ale. Leodegar answered with a chuckle, but clearly didn't find it as interesting as Theobald did. What really interested Leodegar was past battles, and once Theobald asked him about the siege of Pavia many years ago, Leodegar related tale after tale of attack, defense, and battlefield maneuver. The best had to be against the Saxons just after we took Sigeberg, said Leodegar. I led a cavalry unit to survey the surrounding villages and let them know we were in charge now. Turned out, twenty pagans were waiting in the woods for us. They caught us on a trail where it narrowed and attacked us from the side. Now, you know that cavalry does best in a charge, not when defending in a long line. Here, Theobald nodded knowingly, as if it were obvious. Well, my captain and I took off in one direction so they couldn't pull us off our horses, and they must have thought we were running away. We wheeled around and charged back at them, just the two of us, and they had already turned their attention to the men they had pulled down and were butchering. Well, we came at them, thundering back through the trees... Giles was having trouble keeping pace with his translation here as the Count got into his story. And we saw, over the top of the mob, that another group of us had done the same thing on the other side. They were riding toward us with those accursed pagans in the middle. We hit them from both sides, and I swear it was like a hammer hitting an anvil. Crunch! The Odegar pounded his fist on the table, grinning. The Saxons should have given up after Sigeberg, but they didn't know it was good for them. I was there at Verdin when Whittikun slipped through our fingers running to hide with the bloody Danes, leaving thousands of his men to get slaughtered. I tell you what, he said, his temper gaining momentum, I would as soon kill a Dane as look at him. Bloody heathens. Theobald decided this was his moment to act. My gracious lord, he said, your prowess as a warrior is well known, and it would be a great honor if my son could fight by your side. 
He is young and strong, and he knows no fear. Gregory thought immediately that not only was he not particularly strong, but he wouldn't say he was fearless either. He had never been in a real fight, not one in which blood got spilled. He clenched his jaw and looked resolute as the Count looked at him appraisingly. "'I would serve you well, my lord,' said Gregory. Leodegar nodded and took another mouthful of food before answering. "'I'm sure you would do well, lad,' he said. He turned back to Theobald. "'What could you provide for him?' Giles translated, and Theobald realized he must be missing something. "'Provide for him?' he asked. "'I assume he has weapons, armor, and a horse,' said the Count. "'But he will have expenses. As a man at arms, he will be in my keeping and need to be provided for. I'll need forty solidi.' Theobald felt his stomach lurch. Forty solidi was more than he had, but he might be able to make up the difference if he sold some livestock. "'My lord,' he said hesitantly, "'Gregory has a fine sword and a shirt of mail. Show him, Gregory. We got them in Dorstad this summer, from a smith named Frederick. You may know him.' Gregory held up the sword. "'But can you use them?' asked Leodegar. "'I can learn, my lord,' said Gregory. "'And a horse?' He can use the rouncey you see in the corral outside, said Theobald. Leodegar laughed in disbelief. Not a farm horse, he said. He'll need a proper war horse. Leodegar shook his head, thinking of the situation. A young man like Gregory should have been taught how to fight years ago. He should have grown up fighting. Now this farmer thought he could hand over his son to him, a count, and expect the young man to learn along the way? Gregory would be better suited to join the peasants who got conscripted from time to time, to be given a spear and put up in front of the formation to absorb some of the enemy's arrows. Sixty solidi, said Leodegar, finishing off his cup of ale. My sergeant can help him find a decent horse and teach him how to hold the right end of that sword. I will see what I have, stammered Theobald, feeling all his plans crumble. Will you have more to drink? I thank you for your hospitality, said Leodegar, but I am quite full. You can give me your answer in the morning. He stood and brushed off the front of his tunic and left the house, followed by his clerk. Father Wilfrith remained at the table, aware of Theobald's embarrassment and looking for a way to help. He reached out silently and patted Gregory on the arm. Gregory, unlike his father, wasn't crushed. He wasn't even particularly embarrassed, but seemed to contemplate what might lie ahead. He stood and said, Father, with your permission, I'll go for a walk now. And he picked up his lyre on the way out the door.